I bet you didn't know that the holy sacrifice of the cross didn't start on Calvary. Mm-mm. Stick around. Let's talk about it. Houston, we have a problem. Habemos papam. Podcasting from a parking lot in the Woodlands, Texas, it's the Catholic Act with Joe McLean. Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. 1 Peter 3.15 Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all, so that sins may be forgiven. The Church of the Living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 Do this in memory of Welcome back to the Catholic Hack. I'm Joe McLean, and this is episode number 79. And today, we have a very special guest. Today, Josh LeBlanc from the Catholic Underground and, and many, many other endeavors is joining us today to talk about the fourth cup. We're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper and our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary and how they're linked and how they are actually one and the same sacrifice. So we're going to be getting into all of that and very pleased to, to have Josh join us on the show. This is a live show. I've I've switched formats. I've gone to a, a whole new a thing. At least that's what I hope. It's a live format broadcasting on Ustream right now. We actually have at least uh, one guest with us, Bill Kennedy. Bill, thank you for joining us in the chat room. Uh, prayerfully, we'll have more as the show goes on. But it's recording live, and I've been able to uh, enhance the show with some new technology, a brand new camera and some new software, and I'm hoping that it gives us... Um, just a new flavor to the show, some growth, which we've needed for quite some time. But before we begin all of that, we always like to begin with prayer. And so I thought we should, you know, begin this one just the same as all the rest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we praise your holy name. As we enter this holy week, please, dear Heavenly Father, give us the opportunity to to just live in your love and, and just contemplate your sacrifice for us. I pray, Father, that you will hear the, all the petitions of all the faithful who are praying so eagerly this week to seek you, to have that personal relationship with you, that relationship in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, that we can join ourselves to you in the Eucharist, and so as we talk about that today, I pray that you'll inspire us. And Heavenly Father, I also want to lift up to you all the listeners of this podcast and all of their inflictions, all those things that they carry within their cross. Oh, Heavenly Father, please hear their plea, and I beg of you to have mercy upon them and to provide for their needs. Father, I also ask you to bless my wife as she gives birth to my son, Daniel Jude. So I seek this provision in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as also as usual, we have Dr. Scott Hahn breaking the bread. So without further ado, let's break bread with Dr. Scott Hahn. This Sunday, we awaken to more than cold morning light. We awaken to glory. 
because it's Easter, the Passover of the Lord. With daylight comes a new creation, a death to death, a life in the risen Christ. This is the day we've awaited, the day the Lord has made. Find out more next on Breaking the Bread. The tomb was empty. In the early morning darkness of that first Easter, there was only confusion for Mary Magdalene and the other disciples. But as the daylight spread, they saw the dawning of a new creation. At first, they didn't understand the scripture the gospel tells us this Sunday. We don't know which precise scripture text they were supposed to understand. Perhaps it's the sign of Jonah, who rose from the belly of the great fish after three days. Or maybe Hosea's prophecy of Israel's restoration from exile after three days. Perhaps it's the psalmist who rejoiced that God had not abandoned him to the netherworld. Whichever scripture it was, as the disciples bent down into the tomb, they saw and they believed. What did they see? Burial shrouds in an empty tomb. The stone removed from the tomb. Seven times in nine verses we hear that word, tomb. What did they believe? That God had done what Jesus said he'd do raising him up on the third day. What they saw and believed they bore witness to. As this Sunday's first reading tells us, Peter's speech is a summary of the gospel. From Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, to his hanging on a tree, to his rising from the dead. We are children of the apostles, born into the new creation of their witness. Our lives are now hidden with Christ in God, as Paul tells us in this Sunday's epistle. Like them, we gather in the morning on the first day of the week to celebrate the Eucharist, the feast of the resurrection. We rejoice that the stones have been rolled away from our tombs also. Each of us can shout as we do in this Sunday's responsorial psalm, I shall not die, but live. They saw and believed, and we await the day they promised would come when we too will appear with him in glory. This is Scott Hahn for Breaking the Bread. Breaking the Bread is a production of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. If you'd like to receive written copies of Dr. Hahn's reflections on the Sunday Mass readings, you can contact us by email at staff at salvationhistory.com or call us at 740-264-9535. That's 740-264-9535. Well, it is no mistake, and I think if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you'll know that I absolutely love typology, and the fourth cup is loaded with typology, and that's why I've invited Josh LeBlanc to join us, and so today, we're going to roll up our sleeves, and we're going to dive deep, and we're going to get into the truth about the fourth cup. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! This when I sit. Even just a little bit, I get hit with the power that made the veil in the temple split. When I submit, fall on the floor and the door. Can't get enough, got to come back for some more. Hey, we've got a problem here. Sinner, every woman in the free can benefit in this school. Repent and commit. Roger that. As the incense rises up in adoration of the throne. Something happens to my wounded heart from all the love revealed and shown. Bright like Shekinah comes to my head to persist. The change and sustain the way I think it exists. To feel the bliss because my name is in the book of life's list. That's what happens when you sit in the school of the Eucharist. Mr. Hammond, take her down. Make your depth 150 feet. 
10 degree down bubble. 150 feet, 10 degree down bubble. Aye, sir. Dive, dive, dive. Well, welcome back to the Catholic Hack. I'm Joe McLean, and today we're talking about the fourth cup. And so let us begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Joining me today is a special guest, Joshua LeBlanc. Josh is the co-founder and president of CyberCatholic.com, a 100% Catholic web hosting service. He is also the mind behind the annual Catholic Blog Awards. Joshua is married and currently works in the IT field in Lafayette, Louisiana. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Philosophy and Liberal Arts from St. Joseph Seminary College in Covington, Louisiana, and is currently a candidate for the Master of Arts degree in Theology and Christian Ministry from Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Joshua also freelances as a speaker and writer on various Catholic issues and subjects and is the host of Finding Your Keys on Radio Maria and the co-host of the weekly live television show Champions of Truth, which airs in Lafayette, Louisiana. Josh is also a regular contributor and panelist on the CatholicUnderground.com podcast, which is probably how we know him the most. Joshua, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Joe. Well, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time tonight to join us as we have entered Holy Week. And I know you're like me. You really love typology. You love covenant theology. I know that from you and our experience dealing with one another. And I thought that this would be a great topic that you could just sink your teeth into. And so before we just get too deep into all of that, I just want to start us off with a little paragraph here from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Paragraph 1323, it says... At the Last Supper, on the night he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. This he did in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages until he should come again, and so to entrust to his beloved spouse, the Church, a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet in which Christ is consumed, the mind is filled with grace, and a pledge of future glory is given to us. That's a pretty compact paragraph, don't you think, Josh? Yeah, I, that you know, that's pretty much uh, the summation of exactly you know what we're going to talk about tonight. And you mentioned that fact of uh, you know how I really, really love covenant theology, and not only do I love covenant theology, but I love nothing more than Holy Week in particular. The Triduum, because this is when we see this typology, this this true uh, the covenant coming alive. You know, I remember in my own journey when I discovered the fourth cup, and basically I discovered it in uh, this book right here. It's called The Father Who Keeps His Promises by Dr. Scott Hahn. And I know I've touted this book too many times probably, but it really did blow me away to realize that there was such an intimate link between Jesus's uh, Last Supper, his cross at Calvary, and the Paschal meal, that, that, that Passover banquet that was instituted some 1,300 years before that at, uh, in Egypt. And so that really blew my mind. And the fourth cup really helped me to understand that, because he, okay, I struggled with Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I struggled when Jesus said mm -hmm. in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. I mean, it just it bothered me. And I heard so many people give so many good explanations as to why that could be. Jesus was human. 
but it didn't it didn't mm-hmm. matter. He's Jesus. He is God incarnate. Even though he is also yeah. perfectly human, it just didn't make sense to me uh, that he could just you know act that way. And so I had to believe that there was a purpose, there was a reason behind all of that. And this fourth club. It really gave me the explanation. It really made sense to me. It gave me what I was really looking for. So, Josh, I don't know if your experiences were similar to mine, but this was eye-opening. Well, yeah, for me, it really was Dr. Han's book, A Father Who Keeps His Promises, that opened my eyes. For a little bit of history about myself, as you mentioned, I have a a bachelor's degree in philosophy and um, the liberal arts. I was in seminary for four years, and... That really gave me a springboard for learning theology, and I really prided myself as uh, being a good theologian, teaching what the church taught, and really uh, bringing that to others. Uh, And as I told Dr. Han whenever I got the chance to meet him last year, in my mind what I had done as a theologian was I had divorced theology from... um, from scriptural theology, from from doing good scriptural exegesis. I thought that they were something completely different, that to be able to be a good theologian, you didn't have to know scripture well, you just had to know what the church taught. And then I got a hold of A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Dr. Hahn, and I was instantly hooked. Uh, instantly I fell in love with covenantal theology, and it's been my specialty, uh, specialty, I guess, ever since. In fact, in my my local parish here, I just finished a teaching a 14-part series on the book of Father Who Keeps His Promises, where we had an excellent turnout, and that's actually being produced right now into to audio CDs. But uh, it was a great experience to be able to teach this to individuals who were certainly hungering uh, for this idea of typology, specifically regards to the connection of the Old Covenant and the New, specifically uh, in this, uh, this Last Supper. Yeah, you and I have discussed typology on Finding Your Keys before, and uh, we've mm-hmm. talked a lot about uh, you know Isaac being offered up as a sacrifice, as the as the firstborn sacrifice, and that idea right. really links into what we're talking about here in Holy Week. It is it is very crucial for us to understand all those pieces. So, Josh, why don't we get into that? Why don't we start talking mm-hmm. about um, all of those? crucial pieces. And I think really to um, sort of set the stage, I think we need to go back and read that text from Exodus uh, where Moses was commanded by God to institute that Passover meal that first night. And so that's found in Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 3 and it says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they shall take every man a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then a man and his neighbor next to his house shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs in the evening." Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the, t- on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat them. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled with water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. 
and I'm just going to skip forward here. It says, it is the Lord's Passover, and back in verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you upon the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plagues shall fall shall fall upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So Josh, why don't you just give us some background about what is going on in this Passover? What does all this mean? Why the lamb? Why blood on doorposts and lentils? Why anything? Yeah, well, something to keep in mind is the way God is working. Remember, of course, he's giving the Jewish people through Moses this Passover feast. And if you remember correctly from what is happening here, is that they're getting ready to celebrate this feast, of course, and the feast is called Passover, in which the angel will pass over the houses of those who will who have kept the Lord's covenant. And this blood, the smearing of the blood upon the doors and upon the lentils, as you've noticed, upon the lampposts, is a sign to the angel to pass over this house to not kill the firstborn, that these people have been faithful to the covenant. And this is a very clearly an early sign to the Jewish people. Because one of the ways that God works primarily is by setting up these chains of events. He knew that by giving the Jews, of course, um, as you talked about earlier, the story of what happens with Isaac and Abraham, and then all of these things that happen, including the Passover, and that these would be taught to the Jews from centuries into centuries, even into the end of the ages. And so it was ultimately preparing the Jewish people for what was going to come, the fulfillment of all of these in Jesus Christ. And so what God expected to happen, and of course did happen for many Jews, was that they would see Jesus Christ, and immediately their eyes would be opened and they would see what God had promised and prefigured in that, in Isaac going up uh, to, with, uh, to the mountain with Abraham, in which he was was spared death, and then ultimately in looking at the Passover meal, looking at the um, looking at this, what God commanded, as you noted, the very things that we were going to see, as Isaiah talks about of Jesus Christ, about the, the lamb had to be unblemished, that the lamb had to be perfect, that the, the lamb ha had not only was it enough to take the lamb and to slaughter the lamb and to spread its blood, but you had to partake of the lamb as well, ultimately leading to this teaching on the Eucharist, the teaching of the consuming of the body and blood of Jesus Christ himself. The good, the, the Holy Thursday meal, the, the, the true Passover, the Passover of the new covenant uh, is what this all points to. You know, there's a couple of interesting points in this narrative that I like to point out. Um, yeah. One of the biggest points are the whole issue over the firstborn, as you talked about with Isaac. You know, the the Egyptians didn't want to give their firstborns. They gave them anyway. No. They didn't have a choice in the matter. God exacted them. The Israelites were saved from giving their firstborn. And Isaac, or Abraham, 
he didn't necessarily want to to sacrifice Isaac, but he was willing to obey and to do it anyway. And so God right. God counted that as righteousness, right? Well, Jesus sure. Jesus willingly gives himself. And that's what the gospel tells us in the narrative of his passion. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink? Shall I not do what he has given me, the task he has given me to do? In this past Sunday's reading, that uh, it was what the, uh, the Passion Sunday, we heard, we heard the second reading said that Jesus was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And it seems that that, that, that word of obedience really is important in helping us to understand what goes on with the passion of our Lord. And that helps to, uh, to, helps to explain all those tricky verses of, uh, you know, Father, why have you forsaken me? Or let this cup pass for me. Because ultimately, no matter how bad or despairing or, you know, how painful anything was that he endured, it was his willing his willingness to be obedient that saw him through it all. But not because he is not capable or he's not up to the task, but because he knew that we aren't and that we need to know. We need a good example. We need to be shown the way of, of just being obedience over all obstacles, enduring the suffering, even though it's painful, because obedience at the end of the day, being obedient to God and what he's called us to do is far more important than any kind of earthly suffering. And this is just an initial thought that I had when comparing the requirement of the firstborn from all the different interested parties, the Egyptians, the Israelites, Abraham, and Jesus. That sort of stuck out to me like a sore thumb. And then I started to pick up on all those other very crucial factors, like the fact that uh, it had to be a lamb that was without blemish. It couldn't have a broken bone. They took it on the 10th day and had to keep it with them. They had to keep this lamb on the ten from the 10th day until the 14th day. When the 14th day came around, they slaughtered the lamb. The high priest slaughtered the lamb. That would be Aaron, uh, who slaughtered the, the, the lambs, but at a certain time. Now, my, my translation says uh, evening, and in uh, the little footnotes it says it's Hebrew, meaning between the two evenings. But, uh, Josh, maybe you, can, maybe you can corroborate this, but I think from most scholars, they think that that time was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, or what they refer to as twilight. Is is that the case? Right. Yeah, that's that's exactly the case, is that you have uh, 3 o'clock hour, which is often referred to as the sixth hour. And why a lot of people ask why that is the sixth hour is if you count back six hours, uh, you have the first hour of when the Jewish people would begin in prayer. And of course, that is 9 a.m. in the morning. It was the first hour of prayer for the day for, for the Jewish people. And so 9 o'clock beginning the first hour, that 3 o'clock hour was referred to as the sixth hour. But you made a whole host of points there because what a lot of people don't realize is when you look at all of these things, first of all, you mentioned the Egyptians. Um, this killing of the firstborn, of course, being the last plague of the Egyptians. And all of these plagues were very intently marked at which you uh, connected to obedience is what you were talking about. When you look at uh, all of the, every one of the plagues was an attack directly on Egyptian gods. For example, uh, when you look at this specific plague, the plague of killing the firstborn, the, fir the Egyptians believed that the firstborn son was in himself a deity. He had a place uh, among the gods and he was deified. And so um, this killing 
of the firstborn son was a direct, the ultimate attack of killing of the Egyptian gods as well as the other, uh, the other plagues as well. But when you look at how this all connects, specifically how that the Old Testament uh, Passover, and you notice, you know, you know, you noted how you have to keep the lamb for four days. Okay, imagine being a Jew. You've got this lamb on the tenth day. You've got to keep it for four days. I'm sure they were on their their best behavior in watching this lamb and guarding it over, uh, and making sure nothing happened to it. Because if you've ever uh, if you've ever watched lambs, um, they uh, while they they do stay with their shepherd, they still have the tendency to run around and to play and all of those things that you expect young animals to do. And the last thing you want to do is this animal in four days that you've got it as you're preparing for the Passover is fit to break a bone. And so you could just imagine the, 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 the Jews watching this. And of course, they had to bring, on that 14th day, they had to bring the lamb to the high priest. And if you remember, the last high priest would have been Caiaphas. So at the time Jesus is dying, Caiaphas would have been the high priest that year, and so he would be the one who was to slaughter the lamb. And so we look back to Jesus' time, okay? We see, first of all, we talk about the Eucharist. The word Eucharist comes from the Greek word meaning Eucharistisos, meaning covenant, but also meaning thanksgiving. There's that duality of meanings here, okay? And Christ establishes the new covenant, not as Protestants think, not on the cross, but at the Passover feast, on a Holy Thursday, as we Catholics are getting to ready to celebrate. Because something that is often passed over and not noticed is that Jesus celebrates the Passover win on a Thursday. Now, if you read scripture, you know that the Passover for the Jewish people doesn't happen until Friday. The next day, so Jesus is celebrating his Passover feast an entire day before the entire Jewish community is celebrating their Passover feast. And there's a big problem with that. The problem is, is that if the lambs are, are slaughtered by the high priest on Passover on the Friday, Jesus is celebrating on the Thursday, there is no lamb to slaughter. So what do they do for the Passover meal? We, as we're talking about this, Joe, you mentioned the fourth cup, that the, the celebration of the Passover has a distinct form. It's a meal that's broken up into four parts, and these four parts are broken up by these four cups of wine. It begins by uh, having the Kaddush, which is the blessing of the wine, and then the first cup of wine is consumed, and then the Jewish people would, would together eat a dish of bitter herbs. And if you've ever got to experience the Passover meal, you very clearly can see the prefigurement of the new Passover meal. Because next they would, they would recite the Passover narrative and sing Psalm 113, which was known as the Little Halil. And then they would consume this second cup of wine. But then after the second cup of wine, they would consume the lamb that was sacrificed by the priests at that day at 3 p.m. or as we call it the sixth hour and they would drink of the third cup. But if you read from St. Matthew's Gospel, you see at this point is whenever Christ takes bread 
and says, this is my body which is given up to you. Very clearly in the mind of the Jews, they would have known this is the point in which he should be eating the lamb. And so Jesus is offering himself as the new lamb of God, as the lamb of God. He's instituting the Eucharist here. Mm. And then they would have drank in that third cup, and the third cup being the the um, the Eucharistic cup, the cup that Christ offer, offers. The cup of blessing, and, which St. Paul makes and then clear. The cup in of Ro- blessing. Yeah, St. Paul makes that clear in Romans 4.25 when he says that, uh, actually back up to part of verse 24, it says, It will be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was put to death for our trespass and raised for our trespass justification actually that's not even the verse that I was wanting to mention it but <laughs> to, I, I'm moving skipping forward there because uh, I'm, I'll make that point later but it is St. Paul who tells us that Jesus had to be raised or Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 he talks about how the cup of blessing is the is the cup that we partake in right which is the cup of blessing that's liturgical Jewish language for that third cup right and that's that's a very important point too not only is it that clear language of it being a third cup but it's also a clear language that a covenantal act is happening here because remember for the Jewish people it was more important to be members of God's covenant to, to be family members. It, brothers were divided because uh, one followed the covenant and another didn't. That's why for Jewish people, the idea of a child being adopted didn't matter. Mm. It was just as strong as bloodlines if, if they followed the covenant. It's, so if you had an adopted brother who followed the covenant and a blood brother who didn't, the, the brother who... Uh, was adopted was of much greater importance to you okay and so this idea is what you have to keep in mind this idea of covenant and then Jesus breaks the bread gives it to his disciples and he uses the words gave thanks again we, as I said uses that word the Greek Eucharistisos he then used the Greek obviously but the Greek word is Eucharistisos and that meaning is both covenant and thanksgiving, as we often translate it as thanksgiving, but the Jews would have seen that word, and they wouldn't have thought thanksgiving. They would have seen the word, and they said, wait, there's a covenant. There's a covenantal bond that is going on here. And so you see this establishing of the covenant, again, not at Good Friday, not on the day that Christ is expires, that he is put to death, but here... On Holy Thursday and then in the light of church teaching it makes so much more sense whenever Christ says I give I give up my body freely you do not take it from me now of course they must have been looking at him and thinking Jesus you are a crazy man <laughs> of course we're taking your body from you we're putting you to death you have nothing to say about it but what they didn't know is he has already given up his body given up his body freely when the night before at the, the Mass of the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Eucharist, it is then when Christ gives up his body. And so it's not, at, not on, uh, on Calvary that Christ gives up his body. Sure, that is when this fourth cup, and I think that's what we're getting ready to get into, the importance. Because what would have normally happened in the Passover meal is they would have sung the great Hillel, mm. and then they would have consumed this last cup, the cup of consummation. Because if you remember... 
We see them in Scripture. We see that Jesus is singing. We see him singing. But then it says they went up to the Mount of Olives. The cup, the last cup, is never happens. It, it so immediately a good Jew is looking at this and going, "What is wrong with this Jew? Right. What is wrong with this man? <laughs> what is wrong with him? He didn't finish the Passover." And that's what that's what Rosalind Moss says when she first looked at that. She says, "What's wrong with him? He didn't finish the Passover." Right. And we don't see that from a Catholic perspective. We don't see that because being members of the New Covenant, we we don't we haven't gone back and we haven't read through our Jewish roots. But immediately those who were Jews would have seen this that he did not. He did not finish the Passover meal. Right. And so that's how we get into this fourth covenant. You know, I, this fourth cup, I mean. Exactly. You know, and there's kind of a, a, a time, a shifting kind of thing going on here. It's almost like a, a really good episode of Lost. You know, you're never quite sure where yeah. you're at in the timeline. <laughs> because, you know, back in that, uh, in that passage in Exodus, uh, Moses commanded them that they had to eat that night. In order to fulfill the Passover, to to fulfill what God had commanded them to do, they had to eat that night. Well, clearly Mm -hmm. they didn't eat the lamb that night. So what gives? But they did eat Jesus' body and blood. And that it would have to be Jesus' body and blood in order for it to to fulfill that part. As, As we're told at the very outset of John's gospel from John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is clearly instituting something very unique and special. He's transforming this old covenant Passover feast, and he's making it into a new sacrament, which St. Paul actually, you know, makes sure he points out in 1 Corinthians, I think in chapter 5, that this is the feast and we must keep it. And so there's a time shifting going on. Yes, he doesn't eat the lamb because he's turned the bread and wine into his blood and into his body. And then he doesn't partake in that fourth cup and he goes out and he goes into a garden. And we've said this, you and I, before we've talked about that. That symbology is yeah. is wonderfully deep and enriching. Why does he go to a garden? Why not to around the corner? Why not in the same room? I mean, if all you're going to do is just, you know, be sorrowful and just uh, so distressed as the gospel tells us, you can do that anywhere. You don't need to actually go across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, Mm -hmm. hike up this hill and do it there. No, you could do it anywhere. But he went there. Why? Because that was a garden. And he needed to usher in what was once destroyed in that relationship in the garden. So he's undoing, he's untying that knot that was tied so long ago before Jesus there in a garden where Adam and Eve made that first fall. And so there is a lot of deepness going on there. But this fourth cup, and a lot of people have speculated, okay, well, he's saying, let this cup pass for me. Well, is he talking about how that that cup of wrath that's spoken of in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the cup of God's wrath? And I think a lot of Protestants would say, well, that's the cup. That's what he's talking about. Because Jesus took on all of our sins, and then then God poured out his wrath upon Jesus, and he turned his back on Jesus when he was on the cross. And that's why Jesus says, you know, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, you know, but that's not the case, is it? No, no, and that's that's where what happens is we completely the Protestants completely miss what is going on here, okay? Because like you just said, Jesus has completed. Uh, we, first of all, there's no Protestants in this time, so you can't even look at it from a Protestant perspective. You have to look at it from the Jewish perspective because that's what he was writing to. He wasn't the the gospel writers were not writing to Protestants. 
They were writing, they weren't even really writing to Catholics. They were writing to the Jewish people so the Jewish people would understand what is going on. Because as we saw in Matthew 26, that Jesus consumed all three cups. He, cons he consumed the lamb, which is himself. We don't even start talking about the mystery of Christ consuming him himself at the Eucharist. But then the disciples, his apostles there, can consume and they leave. And they go, as you noted, to the Garden of Gethsemane, which some tradition holds that this is also the same place as the Garden of Eden. And so you have the new Adam going to the Garden of Eden to prepare for the ultimate sacrificing of himself, the very thing that Adam refused to do. Because if you remember, the definition of sin is the refusal to sacrifice of oneself. And so that's why you see Jesus, in, uh, Jesus that's why you see God imposing upon uh, the Jewish people in the covenant with Deut in Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy, he imposes upon them obligatory fasts and festivals because they refuse to sacrifice of themselves. And so to atone, that's the reason that sacrifice atones for sin, is because at its very center, sacrifice does the exact opposite of sin, it is the freely giving up of self. And so you have here in this in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ going to willingly and prepare to willingly sacrifice himself. And so now we have to talk about this issue of Jesus completing the Passover. Matthew tells us that they immediately went to the Mount of Olives after they were singing that great Halil, but that the finishing of the Passover is not done. And Scott Hahn talks about this. He said he was at a homily, he was um, attending uh, a service sermon, yeah. whenever he was... Yeah, sermon where he was preparing to be a Pentecostal pastor, and he said um, to give the sermon. One of his professors got up and he started talking about um, he started talking about what does Christ mean when he says it is finished. And Scott Hahn says, well, of course he's talking about uh, the 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 uh, the fulfillment of himself and the giving of himself, his blood for us. He said that's what he's talking about. Everything has come to pass, and. Uh, his professor said, you know what, I don't think that's what it means, and we don't know that's what it means. And he says this in his, his sermon, and so Han was taken aback, and he says, well, if that's the case, then I have to find out what it means. Mm. And he said it wasn't until he started reading uh, the, er, the writings, again, of the early church fathers and seeing what the Catholic Church says, that immediately this idea of the finishing of the Passover comes to his mind, because... Look at the similarities that are getting ready to go on here. At 3 o'clock, when Jesus Christ gives up his body on the cross, in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, it tells us that's the same hour when the lambs were being slain by the priests. Also, keep in mind that Jesus' bones were never broken, making him an unblemished lamb. Now, when you look at what Jesus says on the cross, and it's, I think it's very beautiful when you read the Latin Vulgate Bible and you don't look at the translations. Uh, I mean, obviously the Latin is a translation, but when you read the Latin translation, the words that Jerome uses there are, Jesus says, consumatum est, which means it is finished. It also means it is consummated. It is complete. Mm. When you look at the words... When you look at those beautiful words that are used by the Jewish people for that last cup, the fourth cup, 
the cup of consummation is what they call it. Yeah. Now step back just a, step back just a couple of paragraphs in Matthew's in Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel chapter fourteen verse twenty five. Remember what Jesus is telling them at the Last Supper. He says, "Truly I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it anew from the kingdom of God." He's saying there at the Last Supper that he has no intention of finishing it there. He has no intention of the Passover being completed. And if you remember the next day, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, as you marked. Uh, in Matthew 26, he says, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Now, if you don't know anything about this, uh, the Jewish tradition of the Passover, you're going, what cup is he talking about? This makes no sense. Nowhere else is he talking about a cup, but he prays for the cup to pass for me. Jesus prays this three times in the garden. And so he's clearly talking about the last cup, the cup of the Passover, the finishing of the Passover meal, which is going to happen at Calvary. Because if you remember also, St. John's Gospel tells us in, in, gospel, in chapter 19 that there was a bowl of, full of vinegar that was near, um, was near his, and why he was on the cross. And so they took a sponge full of the vinegar and they held it to his mouth. Now, Another thing we have to keep in mind is basically that's what wine is. Wine is fermented grapes. It's basically grapes that have gone bad in a sense. And so they take this wine in its very bare form and they place it up to Jesus' lips. And this is when he says, it is finished, or consumatum est, mm. and then he dies. It is only whenever this Passover meal is completed that Jesus gives up his spirit and it's only whenever he is ready to give up his spirit that he accepts the, 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 the wine from the sponge that is placed up to his lips. You know, and it's very important for us to point out that in the Synoptic Gospels, um, Jesus made emphatically clear that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when the kingdom right. of his father was made manifest. And, you know, when I used to read that, I was was thinking, well, that's in heaven, or that's when Jesus comes again at the second coming, or that's eternity, but it's not, it's certainly not the very next day, you know, as far as the chronological time clock goes. Uh, you know, it's not, right. only, it's not, it's not just a, a, you know, a couple of 12 hours later, not even 12, it's less than that, I think. And so I think that was the very first important point, that the context in which Jesus is, is crying out to God in the garden is not of the cup of wrath spoken of in Jeremiah and Isaiah. The context, the immediate context, is the Passover Seder. It's the meal. It's the Last Supper. It's the Eucharist. That's the context in which he is doing this. And we read this in the Gospels. And so we can't discount that. And so that's why this link between the Passover meal and the Eucharist is so intertwined, that they're so intimate with one another. And it is so very important to even point out some of the other uh, uh, very peculiar similarities. I mean, the fact that even standing before the tomb of Lazarus in John's Gospel, um, Jesus says, Father, you always hear me, but I do this because they need to know. I mean, he's basically showing, yeah. he's, what he's showing here is not human weakness for the sake of human weakness. He's showing a mastery over human weakness. It's something that all of us should learn from. Weak are all weak, and we are all human, and we're all, you know, we all have suffer. 
but we can master that, maybe not to the same level as God incarnate, but we certainly can try, and we can try to overcome yeah. those weaknesses and utilize offering up those sacrifices as we've tried to do here in the season of Lent to, uh, you know, for... You know, for for the purposes of God's glory and uniting those, as first as Colossians one twenty four says, with the sufferings of Christ on the cross, and so those I think are very important points. And second of all, you know, he goes on to, as I said before, to say, "Shall I not drink from this cup that my Father has given me to drink?" No. In fact, unlike Adam, who who hid like a coward in the bushes, when right. when someone came for him in the garden, no. When someone comes for me, Jesus says, "I'm going to meet them head on. I'm going to go meet them. I'm going to you know confront them as they come out for me instead of hiding in a in a, in a bush." And when he says, mm. "I am," using the Greek words "ego a me," what happens? They fall down in John's gospel because it's the divine name. It links us back to that burning bush with Moses. Once again, a link back to Moses, who also, you know, brought down, or he didn't, but he also was the uh, was the help of bringing down heavenly bread to feed the people in the wilderness, just like Jesus fed the people in the wilderness with the uh, the multiplication of loaves and fishes, and now brings down the true bread, the true manna come down from heaven in this Passover meal, which starts in the upper room and isn't till telestai, isn't consummated, isn't finished until the cross on Calvary. But as we go forward, what do we see? We see these trials with Caiaphas and, and Annas, and we see uh, the, them brought before uh, they bring Jesus before Pilate. Now, they bring Jesus before mm-hmm. Pilate at a very crucial time. It's that hour when what happens when the, the lambs were being prepared for the slaughter. And so Jesus here is being offered up by the high priest, mind you. Now, what happens every year on the Day of Atonement with the Jewish society? The high priest does what? He offers a sacrifice for the behalf of the, all the people and their sins. And what does Caiaphas tell us in the gospel that isn't it prudent that one man should die for all the people? And so God has given him this revelation. He might not even understood it at the time, but he is doing what he is supposed to do as a high priest, offer up sacrifice for the sins of all the people. Well, he does that. He offers Jesus over to be sacrificed for all humanity. And it happens as he's being scourged by Pilate and the cohort. He's being scourged at that same hour where they are washing the lambs, preparing them for slaughter. And then, as we said before, it's at that crucial hour, that twilight, that evening between the two evenings, when he finally he gives up his spirit and he says, it is finished. And so that is, that's what happens. He consummates, he completes, he finishes the liturgy that he started in the upper room. He finally finishes it. And I think the people there at the foot of the cross recognized that that's what's going on. They, they, what he's, he's speaking liturgically here. He's not speaking uh, just some, you know, uh, passionate, romantic, you know, script from some movie. You know what I mean? It's, this is liturgical to speak mm. he's using. And it's, it's very crucial for us to understand that and really sort of calibrate our mentality to seeing it from that perspective. And so that, yeah, and, go ahead. Yeah. You, you know, you make an excellent point there with regards to Caiaphas, because something which is not, God is, is the master of irony. Whenever you read scripture, whenever you see what's going on here is you see Caiaphas, there saying it is better that one man should die than all that, then the, the entire race of people die. And while 
Caiaphas is certainly not a believer in Jesus Christ by any stretch of the means. Um, he obviously is still a prophet. He is still prophesying what is going to happen because it is Jesus Christ's death, ultimately, which prevents an entire generation of people from dying. It is Christ who goes to his death on the cross and by dying saves not just the Jewish people, but the entire world. You know what we then have to come to grips with and realize is that when Jesus does take the, the vinegar, the sour wine, brought up to him mm -hmm. on a branch of hyssop, and are we to think that those are coincidences, mistakes? No. Was Jesus so weak that he missed the point where he said, oh, I, I forgot, I wasn't supposed to take anything to drink? I actually made that promise. Yeah. No, he is showing a mastery of his human nature by forcing his will to be obedient to what God has given him to do. And so that's why it, when it is finished, it is consummated. We have to realize that this here on the cross is the kingdom of God at hand. It has come. Yeah. It is now. And he is on his throne there on the cross. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, St. Paul says, as I said earlier, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, we need to keep the feast. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but we need to keep the feast. Yeah. What is the feast? The feast is the sacrifice of the Mass. It is the Eucharist. It is the new covenant Passover meal. It is the old perfected. It is not as the not the old done away with. It's the old perfected into the new sacrament, which is the body and blood of our Lord given to us for the life of the world. Because in that fourth cup of the Seder meal, the idea was that all people would be drawn to God. What did Jesus say that he when he's lifted high, he would draw all men to himself? And so it's further testimony of what he is doing here and what the Jews failed to see at the time. But he was speaking to them in liturgical language, which is another reason why um, I just love the analogy of uh, when, I, when I was first so bothered by, you know, the, the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me um, passage of Jesus on the cross. That just bothered me to no end. But then I realized what he was doing here. He was quoting Psalm 22. A Todah Psalm. And you and I have talked about Todah before. It's yeah. the Thanksgiving, you know, uh, the Thanksgiving clean sacrifice in the Old uh, Testament uh, tradition. And there are Psalms that start off sort of very sorrowful and dreadful, and, you know, everything is uh, bleak, and you know, I'm surrounded on all sides. They lay me like in the dust of death. But it ends, mm. it turns, and it has a great ending, you know, very upbeat very positive he is he is praising and he is testi he is testifying to god and all the congregation and so when i understood that then it becomes clear okay you're on a cross you're nailed through your nerves and your hands and in your feet and you've been beaten to to the point of death basically that should have killed him already but he's still there on the cross and he's hanging and that fluid is building up into his into his chest and he can't breathe he's struggling to breathe and, and he has to, like, pick himself up on his nails and just to say something. And so instead, and most yeah. times, and from the historical account, most people use their, their, their breaths to, to do what? To curse, to yell profanity. Yeah. 
Jesus doesn't do that. He has very calculated words. He, he, he only speaks when he absolutely has to. And what, what is some of the things he says? He says, mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Mm-hmm. Giving us his mother to be our mother, to be, you know, to protect us, to nurture us, to lead us back to him. And then he says, you yeah. know, it is finished. Or he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me first? And then, you know, then he doesn't say anything else, and people are scandalized by that. But if, if, if he could just talk, he would probably just quote the whole psalm. Instead, he only says the first verse. Why? Because he can barely talk. Because it's so hard, and it's so painful, and it just takes too much out of him. And then he says, I thirst. Are we to believe that he didn't thirst all this up until now? Like he was perfectly, you know, satiated, and he didn't need anything to drink? No, he was thirsty the whole time. Trust me, he's been enduring suffering, sure. you know, and just he just now he's saying I thirst not because he actually is thirsty, but because he's showing a mastery of his human nature and using this for a very specific point to show that he is now consummating that sacrifice. They are linked. It is one from the upper room to the Calvary. They are the same sacrifice. And then, you know, then he goes on to to die. Okay, now, as I, right. as I preempted myself by saying, you know, that when, when we traditionally think of it is finished, we think, well, salvation is finished. It's all, all he's done. Yeah. But no, St. Paul makes it clear that he had to be raised for our justification. And that's what I was trying to read and uh, didn't do a very good job of. I sort of preempted myself, but that's in Romans in chapter uh, four, starting in verse 25. We had, he had to be raised. So he wasn't done with salvation. He still had work to do, and that was his resurrection. And unlike when they offered bulls and goats and sheep and animal sacrifice to God for appeasement of sins, they burned them. They were burnt holocausts. They burned them up, and the smoke rise to God. And those could not, could not wipe away your sin. But what does wipe away our sin when Jesus goes up to God? Kind of in the same, almost the same imagery as smoke rising, Jesus rises to heaven and there sits at the right hand of God, perpetually standing as a lamb, as though slain, as the book of Revelation tells us, there before the very altar of God, who can perpetually atone for our sin. Because we have sinned against an infinite God, it requires an infinite sacrifice to atone for it. And that's unlike that smoke of bulls and goats. Jesus arising into heaven does atone for that. Yeah, and you know that's that's the whole point of what is going on here, is that Jesus ultimately is able to do what we as human beings have a really really hard time with, and that is he makes his he makes his humanity ultimately truly obedient obedient to god himself and that's something we have a really really difficult time with i don't know about you joe but i have a hard time sometimes being obedient much less uh, to human humans that are placed in authority over me and sometimes you know the obedience to god and that's what jesus is ultimately able to do to show us that it's not impossible he was still he was still affected, and with uh, the word to the best way to describe it is Jesus was was uh, his divinity was was limited by his humanity. Not that God could be limited, but was meted out by his humanity. I guess is a good way to say it. And so God ultimately still being human 
had to conform his humanity to his divinity, and Christ is able to do that perfectly, even on the cross when he is in clear pain. And at that moment when any human being, any human being could have hated God for doing this to him, Christ says, no, this was your plan, and I am obedient to you, even unto death, death on a cross. Amen. Well, Josh, we've run out of time, and we've only scratched the surface. Thank you so much sure. for joining us here on the Catholic Hack Podcast. We'll have to have you back very soon. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It's nice being on your show for a change. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for this episode of The Catholic Hack, number 79, The Fourth Cup, with special guest Joshua LeBlanc from The Catholic Underground Podcast and so many other endeavors. I want you to be sure to check out uh, CatholicUnderground.com. Actually, what did I say? Catholic Hack before? See, my mind doesn't work. And as Josh would say, (laughs) that's because I live in the state of Texas. It's just less oxygen, and so the brain cells don't fire in all snapsies. Whatever. Anyway, Josh is from the CatholicUnderground.com network, and I want you to check that out at CatholicUnderground.com, as well as CyberCatholics.com. And uh, also, be sure to check out his new Catholic blog. Actually, it's now New Media uh, Awards. Josh has been doing this for several years, but he's, he's stepped up the pace this time, and he's offering New Media Awards, which encompasses not only blogs, but podcasts, too. So you never know. Maybe the Catholic hack could actually win something. All right, I won't hold my breath on that, but you never know. At any rate, we really appreciate his participation in this, and I would really love to hear from you. I didn't get any takers, not a single taker, on the tickets, the free tickets I was giving away for the um, for the, the Father Karapi live presentation. He's only giving away, he's only doing one live presentation the entire year. That's it. And I have tickets free. It's in Buffalo, New York. I know Buffalo is kind of cold all year long, but you'll get over it. If you still want these tickets, I want to hear from you. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to the last episode. That's episode 78. And give me a call. Give me the call, 713-568-6277, and give me your feedback, and, and I'll give you the tickets. It's that easy. I've got them free. I can give them to you. Father Karapi, he's a winner every time. Actually, the last weekend, Josh and I were at the Fullness of Truth uh, conference in Corpus Christi, Texas, and we had a live present, not a live presentation, but a video presentation from Father Karapi. It was a very special presentation just for Fullness of Truth and just for that one conference, and it went over quite well. Josh was very um, gracious enough to act as one of my MCs on one of my stages, and he did a great job. And so uh, I want to just give us very special thanks to Josh for that. Well, you know, we've got a lot of uh, new endeavors coming down the pike, and so I want you to stay tuned. Be sure to check out the stream over at the Catholic Underground Network, where you can listen to all these podcasts streaming one after another another on the network. So it's a great way to listen to all your favorites, like the Catholic Underground, and yes, even the Catholic Hack. But I also want to hear from you. I need your voicemail feedback. I need your feedback to know what works, what doesn't work. 713-568-6277. Until next time, I'm praying for you. So please pray for me. 
May God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground. Based on digital.